went to a school in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, called uh, Grand Canyon College. It was a pretty small school when I went. I'm not sure how many, but I don't think there were more than 2,000. I don't even know if there were 1,000. Uh, now it's Grand Canyon University, and I think between the, uh, the on-campus and the online enrollment, there's about 150,000. But uh, when, when I was there, we had this uh, guy who was the president. Uh, he, was, he was awesome. He really was. He was one of the, uh, the kindest, gentlest, just an all-around nice guy. Every, everybody loved him. And when, when we'd walk around campus, this is one of the things that would impress me was he spent a lot of time just out walking around, talking to the students. When he ran into you, he'd greet you by name. And he knew something about you. He'd ask, you know, how's it going with whatever. And if you talk to anybody on campus, they would say the same thing. Yeah, he knows me. He, he, he knows my name. He, it was amazing. You know, we, we thought he really had a gift. And I think he did really have a gift. But uh, he had a, uh, just a love for the students. And one, one night he was playing in a basketball game. It was uh, faculty staff against the students. And Dr. Hensey had a heart attack and died on the court. And uh, at, at his funeral, his wife, Barbara, was talking about him. And he said, and, and she said, I, I know a lot of you have, have just come to me in amazement how uh, my husband knew you. You know, he knew your face, he knew your name. And she said, well, I've got a secret to tell you. Every night, he, he went through the uh, student directory, the, uh, the picture directory, and prayed for each one of you. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I think a lot of us have a hard time with, with people's names. I think, I think most of us would admit that that's, that's an issue for us. Um, there was uh, an article that I read. Uh, it was the uh, Institute of Electro- Electrical and Electronics Engineers. I, I used to be a, a member of this organization. And it said that the, uh, the average person is able to put a name on about 1,500 faces. And uh, it, it says many of these are, are like famous people, you know, presidents and actors and musicians and things like that. But even that's pretty amazing, 1,500 people. But in any case, uh, you know, our, our capacity for knowing people, even for knowing names, is it's finite. And our capacity for intimately knowing people is extremely limited. You know, even Dr. Hensey didn't really know me. He just knew my name and something, you know, a little, little factoid about me. We're limited, but not so with God. Not so with God. Today, we're going to look at Psalm 139. This is a, this is a fantastic psalm. I think that if once we start reading this, I think most of you are going to uh, recognize a lot of verses that we read. This is a uh, very well-known, very well-loved psalm written by David. And it speaks of God. It speaks of the awesomeness of God, his, his omniscience. He, he knows all. His omnipresence. He is everywhere. In, uh, <laughs> excuse me. In theological terms, uh, God has attributes in, in two categories. You, you may or may not be familiar with one are, are the uh, communicable 
attributes. You, know, you think communicable. You think, well, these things can be caught, right? They, they can be passed on. These are, the, these are the attributes of God that he shares with us. What are some of them? Love, grace. Uh, what else? Wisdom, patience, righteousness. There's a lot of them. But the other category are non-communicable attributes. These are attributes that belong to God alone. And among these are these two attributes, omniscience. We don't know everything. He does, though. We are not everywhere. We can't be everywhere at once. He can, and he is. And this is the amazingness about God that uh, this psalm talks about. This is a very personal psalm. Very personal. You know, it's true that God is everywhere. It's also true that God knows everyone. But the amazing thing that David points out in this psalm is that he says, God knows me. God knows me and he, he, he knows me well. And everywhere I go, he is there. He's got a... He's got a plan for my life. He's got comfort to give me. He's got love and security that I can find in him. Now, rather than reading through the whole psalm at once, we're just going to kind of take it in in chunks here. It's a very long psalm. And Dr. Don Lindemann pointed out to me that my outline is wrong. He he says, well, there's going to be another sermon, part two on this. No, we're going to go through the whole psalm. I should should have gone through uh, 24 instead of 18, I think it says on, on your outline. Let's read, with, let's read this. Let's just read the, uh, the first six verses, though. Psalm, 131, Psalm 139, 1 through 6. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. You know, this says a lot about God and his relationship with us. He He knows us intimately. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He he knows how we will react to circumstances when they come. Uh, Francis Schaeffer has has a term that he he used sometimes when he would talk about God. He said God was an infinite personal God. An infinite personal God. You know, God's the creator. He created galaxies from nothing. He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He created the plants and the animals. He created humankind in his own image. And he put the first man and woman in a garden where he was there with them. He spoke to them. He was with them. He knew them intimately, Adam and Eve. And he knows us. 
as an infinite God, he knows all of us. As a personal God, he knows each of us very well. You know, he, he knows every, everything about us from our, our thoughts, our, our motives. He knows how many hairs are on each of our heads. Some of us, that's a bigger number than others. Now, Dr. Schaefer points out something with, which we need, to, we need to think about this. Okay, he said, you know, that since he's an infinite personal God, he knows us each as well as he would if we were the only person in the universe that he created. How do you get your mind around that? You know, he, he knows what I'm going to do before I do it. He knows my thoughts before I, I speak them. He, he searches out my path, and he knows where that path will lead. Uh, he, he knows my past, my present, my future. You know, there, there are no possibilities that he's unaware of. Psalm 44.21 says, For he knows the, the secrets of my heart. You know, I can hide my thoughts from people, but I cannot hide my thoughts from God. You know, you, you should find this comforting, but you maybe should also find it alarming, right? You know, this is, this is a far cry from the attitude that some people or the thought that some people have about God that, you know, he's, he's a busy guy. I don't need to bother him with my problems. You ever heard somebody say, have you ever thought that? You know, he's, he's there. He invites us to bring our problems to him. He's not too busy to hear our prayers. He hears our prayers. He knows our thoughts. You know, even when we feel alone and isolated, God is there. His his hand is on us. He cares for us. He's all loving. He's all caring. And I love what David says here. Such knowledge is, is too wonderful for me. It's, it's high. I cannot attain it. You know, he's saying that this is just way too much for me to grasp. You know, in my, in my finite mind, I can't even begin to comprehend how this could possibly be. You know, it's, it's way up there, way up there beyond my, my capacity to comprehend it. Now, you know, God, not only does God know everything about us, about each of us, he is everywhere with us. He's omnipresent. Let's continue with verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit or where, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your right hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. I think the psalm gets kind of interesting right here. You know, David, David has been talking about how God knows him. He knows everything about him. In verse 5, David had said that God hymns him in behind and before. 
Yeah, I want to I want to pose a question. Did did David take comfort in this? Or perhaps did David feel almost trapped? Maybe. <laughs> maybe a little maybe a little of both because now he's talking about you know, escaping God, running away from God, that he, that he can't do it, you know. So, you know, we, this, this being hemmed in, is God snuggling us tightly? Or, you know, does, is, is David possibly maybe a little uncomfortable with this? And I would, I would just pose that question. God is all-knowing. He was all-present. Uh, fleeing from God is not something we can do. Can't be done. We know that from the book of Jonah. Jonah was was a man who tried to flee from God. He tried, but God was there with him through through the whole ordeal. Being swallowed by a, a fish and being in the ocean uh, after he was thrown overboard. You know, God was with him in that fish. God was there. Jonah survived that old ordeal, and it took God's supernatural intervention for him to do that. But Jonah found out he could not run away from God. You know, do we sometimes try to run away from God? Do we, do we sometimes try to fool ourselves into thinking that our, our thoughts are private? You know, we can, we can be really good at, at uh, having horrible thoughts, yet acting pleasant, you know, putting on a, a good face. We can, we can fool other people. We can even fool ourselves, but we can't fool God. When I, I remember when I was younger, and I, I used to hear people say this at church, uh, don't do anything that you wouldn't be doing when Jesus comes. Don't do anything where you would be ashamed or, or embarrassed if Jesus came and saw you doing it. Well, I would, uh, I would say, well, guess what? He's here. He does see you. Even, even if he is not coming, he is here. And he does see. You know, we, we, may, we may think we know everybody or we we may think we know ourselves better than than anybody else does but uh and and that's true with people but it's not true with god now david uses a literary device next it's called a merism m e r i s m he uses it several places in the psalm a merism is a combination of two contrasting words or two contrasting ideas to uh, to refer to an entirety and he says it here. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you know, the, the depths, you are there. Now, what he's not saying is, uh, okay, God's at either extreme. No, he's saying God is there. He's here and he's everywhere in between. And he says, uh, he talks about the wings of the morning. This is beautiful, poetic terminology. The wings of the morning. You know, that's where the sun rises. He talks about the end of the sea, which is 
which is the Mediterranean Sea, which is uh, to the west of, of Israel. What he's saying here is that God is east and he's west and everywhere in between. David says, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Now, if David was bothered by this idea of being hemmed in, I think now he's starting to see there's a benefit. There's a benefit to having such a God. You know, wherever, he, wherever he goes, God is there to lead him, to comfort him, to protect him. You know, God's, God's not like an intrusive, nosy neighbor who's just there to collect the, the dirt on you so that he can slam you. No, he's there for you, for me, in times of need. You know, David is realizing God's unending love here. Even in the darkest places, God will dispel the darkness. Let's move on. God knows us. He's he's with us. And this calls for a response. What do we do with this? You know, David starts putting the, the pieces together here. Why is God so concerned about knowing me so well and being with me all the time. You know, he uses this conjunction for, which ties what he just said to what he's going to say now. Let's look at the next stanza, starting with verse 13. He said, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Listen to this. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're they're more than the sand. I will awake and I am still with you. Well, this this spells it out. You know, this this word for God is involved in my life, in your life, our lives, because he made us. He has the power to make us and to sustain us and and everything else in the universe. He, He has plans for us. He, he formed our inward parts, our, our soul. You know, this is the part that's largely hidden from people, but not from God. He knitted us together in the womb, referring to our physical bodies. He created us, body and soul. And he did this all in a very amazing, awesome way. Fearful and wonderful, awesome and complex is the design of the human body and, and soul. You know, even before birth, God is, is forming us. He has plans for us. You know, this is a, a beautiful picture of the, uh, the sanctity and the uh, importance of, of life. You know, it's, it's, it's very clear in this passage that an unborn baby has great value in God's eyes. God has a plan for that person you know, each each person has a, a future, and, and biblically, 
I don't see that any person has the right to end a person's life before they're born. Uh, that, you know, this is um, this is a tragedy. You know, it's it's not a it's not a political issue. It's a, it's a theological issue. It's you know, it's a, it's a God issue. It's not a matter of rights. It's a matter of righteousness, God's righteousness. Well, in verses seventeen and eighteen. You know, we see that David is just overwhelmed by this. David's response is, how precious are your thoughts? This, this word in the, in the original language, this word precious uh, carries the meaning of something that's difficult, something that, that carries great weight, you know, having great worth. David's marveling at the, the vastness and, and the weightiness of, of God's thoughts which are so far beyond our own. You know, he says, how vast are there some? <clears throat> how can we fully comprehend an infinite God with our finite minds? You know, how can we get, how can we even begin to understand this? We can't. He says that God's thought would, would outnumber the, uh, the grains of sand on, on earth which if you think about it, that's, that's quite a statement. There's a lot of sand on the earth. Now, I heard an interesting thing on the, on the radio a little while back. I, I was listening to, I forget what station, but they, they were talking about how there's a sand shortage. We have a sand shortage, they were saying. Guess what I did? I said, what? How, how could that be? You know, there's sand everywhere. But uh, they, they were saying that it, it was, uh, you know, construction-grade sand that would be used in concrete, you know, that not all sand is created equal. That's neither here nor there. That's just a factoid, a sand shortage. You know, there's a lot of sand in the world, and, you know, think about it. It's, it's on the beaches. It's, it's, it's on the ocean floor. It's in our yard. It's in our carpet. It's everywhere. But you know what? David's statement actually is an understatement because God even knows how many grains of sand there are on the earth. And he knows much more than that. You know, this, this would be another place where we can say, this is too high. This is too wonderful. I cannot comprehend this. Now, David goes a new direction in, in the next section. You know, after considering God's infinitude, his focus becomes on, on people, people who have made themselves enemies of God. Let's read from verse 19. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this, this is the part of the psalm that you don't normally see on T-shirts and, and coffee cups and, you know, little flowery things on, on Facebook. You know, I think that we need to... Uh, Remember what we said uh, when, when we talked about the introduction of the Psalms. The Psalms contain man's heart. 
Every emotion that, that we could possibly have, we see in the Psalms. The Psalms are very honest. There's, there's some, this, this part is, there's a word for it, it's called imprecatory. You know, David honestly was, was feeling this way. You know, after extolling God's greatness, he's calling on God to, to bring judgment on, on the wicked. You know, this puts, this puts us in the New Testament era in a, in a difficult spot, does it not? You know, because when we see God's enemies as our enemies, we might be tempted to think that we are the ones who need to execute judgment. And we go on some pretty shaky ground when we, do, when we do that. You know, we need to look at this from a New Testament perspective. We need to realize it is God who is the righteous judge. It is God who has the right to be the judge. We know that it's Jesus who in the end will, will come and bring destruction upon the wicked, the, the uh, men of blood, those who hate God and rise up against him. In the meanwhile... We need to submit to God because we know that he is sovereign and he has told us to leave it up, the judgment up to him and he has told us to be peacemakers. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans 12, 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourself, yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we need to leave the judgment to God. David's appealing to God to be the judge here. But, you know, he's he's being very honest uh, about his thoughts towards these people who hate God. You know, we, we should be angry about sin, about injustice. We, we should be indignant about child abuse, murder, you know, exploitation of, of, the, enema, of the innocent, all of, all of those things. We, we should be indignant about that. You know, there's a very long list, but we should never make enemies of those who are sinning. We need to show them love. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 to 47, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. But if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So we must not make enemies of people. We must not make enemies, especially of our brothers and sisters in in the Lord, you know, uh, over over matters that, that should not be fought over. You know, the Bible says plenty about stirring up foolish controversies which cause dissension. You know, 1 Timothy chapter 6 
says we need to love another, love one another, seek unity, not division. That was a beautiful verse you read out of Ephesians, Danny, this morning. He did. That was that was very appropriate. Let's look at these last two verses, and this is kind of the the capstone of, of this psalm. This is where we need to be. This is where our hearts need to be, brothers and sisters. He says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Hasn't David come full circle in this psalm? You know, he started out saying, God, you know me. You've searched me. And if he was a little uncomfortable with that, I think that, uh, you know, David was not always aware of God's intimate knowledge of him. You know, when he he lusted after uh, Bathsheba and and committed adultery with her, what did he try to do? He, He tried deception. He tried to cover up his sin. He tried to make it appear that it was something else other than it was. And he ultimately had Bathsheba's husband murdered. You know, it appeared that David thought he could do all this and keep it secret, keep it private, but God showed him otherwise through the prophet Nathan who came to him and told him a story about a man who who had stolen his his neighbor's lamb. And, and, you know, David was upset and he said, uh, you know, this... uh, this this is a crime. This this needs justice. It it demands justice. And what did Nathan do? He pointed his finger at David and said, "You're the one. You you are that man." Oops. You know, David, at that point, realized something about God. He realized that God does know. God does see. And so here, after opening with, you have searched me and you have known me, now he's inviting God to search him, to search his heart and know him. He's welcoming it. You know, he's gone from uneasiness, perhaps, feeling trapped to seeing that God truly does care about him. And he wants to please God. He does not want to grieve God anymore. You know, this needs to be our prayer, brothers and sisters. This needs to be our response to God's magnificence, his amazing attributes. Let's, let's bow before God. Let's, let's lay ourselves bare before him and let him be our judge. Let's ask him to shine his light on every corner, every crevice of our heart and ask him to put his finger on those things that, that he finds grievous in, a, grievous in us. You know, can, can we allow ourselves to do that? Can we put on that sort of humility that invites God to come and do that? You know, because don't we naturally want to justify ourselves, to, to defend ourselves? Or am I the only one? You know, what What about my attitudes, Lord? Are, are they righteous or, or are, are they selfish? You know, Lord, do I, do I love... Only those people who love me. 
do I hate everybody else? Uh, you know, do I love my enemies? Do I, do I love my fellow Christians no matter what? You know, David ends this by saying to the Lord, lead me in your way everlasting. And this, this word that's, that's translated everlasting, it, is, it, it carries the sense of a well-established road. You know, it's a, it's a road that looks into the future, but it also speaks about that which has in the past, that which has been well-established from the old. It's the ancient way. It's God's way from eternity past into eternity future. God is the same. He's unchanging. He's not capricious like the, uh, the pagan gods. We want to be on his path. You know, this... This kind of prayer response seeks God's will for our lives. It it seeks a thought life that is pleasing to God rather than pleasing to self. You know, these last two verses would be good to memorize and pray every day. As we close, this this psalm speaks of the greatness of God. I I would encourage you this week to Read this psalm every day. Read it through each day this week. Use it to worship him. The Bible says the fear of the God, uh, the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. Where's that? Proverbs 9 or 7? Proverbs 1 says the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. You know, we, we need to have a sense of awe and, and reverence before God. He's, he's all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all-powerful, but he's also all-loving. You know, he's the, uh, the infinite person, God, who is intimately involved in our, our lives. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's draw close to God. He, he knows us. He knows what is best for us. Let's, let's respond to God. Let's, let's seek to be led by him, following him into his way everlasting. Let's pray. Uh, our Father, Lord, uh, you, are, you are the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, and we... We do bow before you in, in reverence and in awe. Uh, Lord, when we, when we get a glimpse of you and, and who you are, uh, it's, it's overwhelming, Lord. And when we realize that, that you have a desire to be close to us, Lord, when we realize that Jesus came to die for us, to make it possible for us to be with you and have a relationship with you, um, it Lord, it causes us to just bow in humility before you, Lord. And Lord, it gives us comfort to know that uh, you are a loving father, a father who cares for us, who desires a a close relationship with us. Lord, we long for you. We long for you, Lord. Search our hearts. Know us, Lord, and reveal, reveal to us those, those things that displease you. Lord, lead us in your way. In Jesus' name, amen.